Um, thanks, everyone, for joining. Uh, of course, uh, Brennan Hawken, I cover the capital market space here at UBS. Uh, pleased to say, joined by Jim Zeldner, uh, co-president of Apollo Asset Management. Uh, Jim also serves on Apollo's management executive committee uh, and the form management and executive committee, pardon me, and the firm's, firm's board of directors. Uh, since joining in 2006, Jim led the broad expansion of Apollo's credit platform, which now oversees over half a trillion dollars in assets and supports the, the growth of the business globally. Jim, thanks so much for joining. Glad to be here. Uh, as, we, as we mentioned earlier, a lot, a lot going on with UBS, so appreciate the support um, and, the, and the dialogue today. Absolutely. We value the partnership. Thank you. Um, so there are uh, QR codes on the tables. If you guys would like to support, uh, submit a question, I can check the iPad, but I've got a bunch to get through here. Uh, maybe starting on the macro, uh, let's get your views on the macro outlook and, and the outlook for credit markets. Why don't you think we've seen a credit cycle materialize uh, and that so many had expected? And are you seeing any emerging pockets of credit stress in the U.S. economy? Well, if I was sitting here a year ago, I, I was certainly, we were certainly of the view that we had seen inflation stabilize um, on the goods side. Uh, the supply chain issues had been sort of dealt with and they were working themselves out post-COVID. You still on the services side had a bit of inflation and we would have thought that the aggressive Fed activity would have um, created tighter financial conditions. Um, in retrospect, they haven't, as we all know, when we think why that's been the case, if you look at the average mortgage in the U.S., uh, the average mortgage of all the folks who have mortgages, which is about 60% of homeowners, it's 3.8%. So we've not seen the impact of lower, of, of higher rates on consumers in the U.S. thus far. Very resilient economy. You have to think that some of the inputs that the Fed is using on all their dot plots have been wrong. But, um, you know, I guess as we sit here in 20. 24, let, let's separate enthusiasm for risk for the underlying economy. There's massive enthusiasm for risk. The U.S. is the place to be. With base rates higher, it's a great time to be in credit. With an underlying economy growing, it's a great time to be in credit. It's very unusual. I've been doing this for close to 40 years. It's very unusual to have an environment where at the end of last year you had non-investment-grade defaults approach 4.5%, which is a pretty high number, but it just got masked from a, a tremendously strong underlying economy. So um, there are some strains. If you look at subprime auto, um, there are some strains, multifamily housing, but fundamentally, uh, this is the place to be, this is the place to invest, and you're getting paid like you've never gotten paid in credit. So while the, I think the indexes are a very, very poor barometer of reality. The high yield and loan indexes are very, very tight. Um, a lot of macro players play in those, multi-strategy hedge funds. No one in credit trades the in, buys the index. They may hedge with the index. But um, so, you know, I, I think that while we do see a, a couple of concerns on the economy with, in terms of consumer activity, overall it's a pretty strong place and we like putting money to work right now. Got it. One of the things that I think is interesting uh, is that the market structure in the you know, quote-unquote liquid markets uh, has actually resulted in less consistent liquidity, you know, writ large. 
Uh, so what many people think of as liquid really is, is not that liquid. Um, has that market structure change made the private investment grade pitch or fixed income replacement that Apollo is so on top of any easier? Well, I think it's really one of the untold stories out there. Um, you know, when I started my career, I was a high-yield trader, a junk bond trader. And if you looked at the size of the asset class in the mid to late 80s, it was a $200 billion asset class, which was a big number back then. And there was probably 30 to 40 billion of trading capital or inventory. Today, the U.S. high yield market is a trillion, nine, two trillion, and there's probably 20 billion of trading capital. So this has been a 30 to 40 year uh, evolution, tying back to ROEs, regulatory, business risk, all the things we can talk about. So there's no doubt we are big believers. This idea that you know, high quality is, is safe and low quality is risky and that high quality is liquid and low quality is illiquid, we just think that that is a, a it's not correct. If you look at how long it takes you to trade an IG bond these days, it could take a lot longer. So there's no doubt that the whole definition of what an alternative is, it's not just that little small corner office buying private equity, it's going to be a whole array of activities where people are saying to themselves or coming to the conclusion, why am I paying for liquidity that I don't need? All right. So we, we think that's a, a massive trend when we go out and see the largest investors in the globe that have these very large um, uh, investment grade or, or liquidity vehicles, and they say to themselves, we're, we're a 100-year 100 100-year investor. Why do we need this much liquidity? I think there's a lot of questions like that that are impacting the dynamics of our business. Yeah, and, and liquidity, to your point about the amount that's actually held in inventory. You know, pe people, people think when we do, you know, obviously we have a theme, which is one of our massive drivers. We're, we're trying, our, our objective is to make 30 to 40 basis points more than the traditional player in that space. You know, because we are a traditionally a PE alt firm, they think you guys must be trying to make 12 or 15. No, no. On, on the actual investment grade portfolio, if you were to underwrite new annuities today, you're, and the, that investment grade portfolio is 25 to 30 cents of every dollar that you invest, if you make 30 to 40 basis points incremental spread on that, on that type of regulatory capital, it's tremendous. And so we're willing to give up for, for great companies like AT&T, Venovia, AB InBev, where we've done very, very large financings. Uh, we're making well in excess of that 30 to 40 basis points. Um, so we, we, we think that this is the topic of the future in terms of how people run these portfolios. Yeah, it makes a ton of sense. Um, as you've continued to build out the fixed income replacement origination capabilities, uh, you know, what have you learned and how have you adjusted your approach as a result of that? Well, I think, you know, when you're, when you're on the sell side, which I was on for a couple of decades, you, you are in the classic moving business, as everybody in the audience knows. When you're on the spy side, you're on the classic, you know, you're in the warehouse business. You own stuff forever. Um, and I think when you are in the origination business, you've got to make sure that you have the right structure in place, the right incentives, the right alignment of people, such that you want to have folks bring an investor hat first and not a distribution hat first. 
So we, we look at everything, everything we do, and Mark has been famous for quoting a few things, purchase price matters, and we want 25% of everything and 100% of nothing. Everything that we do in our business model is different than our peers. We want to own a big slug. Now, a big slug may be 25% on a $4 billion tranche. It may be 70% on a $500 million tranche. So what we've learned is it's all about investment first, and then distribution is the overlay or a participant. But what do we want to own? We, we want to come at this thing from a principal uh, approach. And I think, I think borrowers actually, and folks that are coming in to raise capital, that actually uh, rings a tone with them that I think is incredibly uh, undervalued. And when we go out to folks and say, you know, we, we think this can get done here at this rate and this kind of size and these terms, and oh, by the way, we want to own and hold X amount, I think that last comment is what really cements us in a very different light. But, but um, I think, you know, we're still, this is going to sound strange because we've been talked about it, but as much as we've built our origination yeah. and we've created that origination flywheel, I don't want to say we're early days, but I, I see a tremendous amount of inherent growth in the flywheel. You know, we've got our 16 platforms. We've got a variety of partnerships with in investors as well as banks and other capital providers. And we're just seeing more and more opportunity for us to, you know, use those tools in that toolbox. Um, and, and so, I, again, we think about being able to create that flywheel with bringing in liabilities and then investing it wisely through origination. That, that's where I personally spend uh, a vast majority of my time. All right. Well, one of the questions that I get from investors a lot is um, on the originations that you sold last year, you know, 2023, probably benefited from slower investment banking and DCM activity, you know, uh, across the calendar. Do you think that that provided tailwinds to the platforms last year? And, and how do you expect that that market would be impacted if we see traditional DCM issuance ramp back up at the investment banks like so many expect? You know, I've, I've been asked that. I mean, I think... Certainly when, when there's a market dislocation or a lack of confidence or a lack of ability to go to market, you know, we, we are an extremely differentiated platform. I'd rather have a robust marketplace where there's a lot of activity. And so when I think about the close to $1.8 trillion that's been invested in private equity, by private equity, in capital structures the last four years, typically... By 2024, you would have seen half of that money get repaid with monetizations. The reality is you've only gotten one-tenth of that money returned. So there's a tremendous amount of capital structures that, that need attention, need extension, need an equity uh, slug to help roll the debt. So answer your question, listen, I, I, I think there might be a little bit of that, but um, I, I don't think it's, it's a much bigger secular opportunity than the tactical opportunity that might have existed because some folks were a little bit flat on their foot. And I would also say all, all you need is to have one transaction get stuck that is in a commitment pipeline and the risk appetite will continue to go back to its secular change. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think if you look at where, what, you know, collectively, just I'll point some numbers out, 
in 0809, Wall Street got stuck with almost 500 billion of leveraged loans and high yield at the peak of the crisis. Last year or two, when it got when it got clogged up, the street was long 100 billion. So 500 billion to 100 billion, and I suspect that the new UBS and I know your management team, um, the new Morgan Stanley, they're just not going to open up the doors and say, bring on the risk. That's just not their business model with the global wealth and other things. So um, I, I think this is a, a much broader secular trend that we're, we're encountering. Sure. And I, for UBS, I can say that's definitely the case. Yeah. Your, your CEO has not, been, has not been shy about That's right. He's not been shy. No. Chairman, neither. Yeah, uh, yeah. So uh, growth in the capital solutions businesses exceeded expectations. Mm -hmm. you know, fee growth of, of over $500 million in 2023, already basically at your five-year target. So how were you able to achieve that so quickly, and, and what do you think the outlook for the growth looks like, looks like from here? Well, I think what, what, it, what it proves to us is that the pieces were all there. It just was a – I mean, this is a business that – Four or five years ago, we were doing 50 to 100 million in revenue, and we knew that all the incumbent pieces, when you, when you have a platform with you know, north of 650 billion of assets and almost 500 billion in credit, there's enough activity, even if there's no big waves, the tide's coming and going every day on, on activity. So what gives us a lot of excitement is the fact that the, the 16 origination platforms you know, Atlas, the old, the old CS platform, is relatively new. Uh, Midcap is really hitting a stride right now. PK Aviation is hitting its stride. So, you know, we're convinced that the new way of looking at the world, and what I mean by that is we look at the world as our 2,500 LPs around the globe. What we now look at the world is we have 3,000 current LPs, but we've got 5,000 potential LPs. So the syndication activity, the activity where we show co-investments, that it's a flywheel. We show, at, we show transactions. They say, wow, we like this flow. We'll buy these two. Let's talk about an SMA. Let's talk about a mandate, a commingled fund. So I, I think we're just confident that as this gets more and more embraced around the firm, and we had a partner's offsite last month. I spent a half a day talking about origination and distribution as big themes, because I would say of our 200 partners, many, many, many of them know what we do, but there's still a portion that we can still have help position that business, right. and, and I believe we can. Yeah. One of the things in, in talking about LPs uh, over the past year and a half or so um, is the need to return the capital. So there seems to be growing confidence in that recovery in the capital markets activity uh, getting started would allow for that. So have we started to see transactions that allow capital to be returned to LPs? And if not, what set of circumstances do you think needs to happen in order to allow that to improve? Well, I think, I think the biggest issue is of the, you know, close to a trillion seven that got invested between 17, 18, and 21. You know, that, as I said, that number, we would normally have returned half at 800 billion. Only about 200 billion has been returned. So what's going to have to happen is if you are a, a, a financial sponsor PE firm and you're confronted with a capital structure that has impending debt maturities that may be at a higher magnitude than the market can finance, you're going to have to either throw in some more equity 
or delever that with you know some equity from a convert or a preferred. So I think as the stalemate continues and those financial sponsors want to go out and raise the subsequent fund, they're going to have to deal with the, the nature of reality of their existing portfolio. And they can't just, you know, they can't just sit on their hands. Right. So it, it's, it's, it's that, that's what gets us excited about deploying capital in a higher rate environment. That, you know, the natural gravity of them, those sponsors wanting to go out to raise more capital in a subsequent fund, there, there has to be a, a, a break in the dam. Yeah. It's, just, it's natural. Else, folks won't. You, you can't fund your PE business by not fundraising every three or four years. It's just the economics don't work. Right. Right. Um, you guys expect, speaking of fundraising, you expect pretty strong fundraising third party in, in 2024 mm-hmm. with a, a $50 billion target. Can you talk about what channels and strategies you think will drive that fundraising outlook? Well, certainly, I mean, credit credit is a... Uh, is the is the dominant fundraising conversation these days, and with rates at at, at, at these levels, uh, you know, we built our business assuming that the the rates were not going to be much higher than they were for a decade long. This is a huge bonus to us. So, you know, between the you know the the, the first is the institutional channel, and between Asia, the Middle East, now Latin America. I was in Mexico City a couple weeks ago. Um, and even in the U.S., there's, there's strong institutional demand across the board for a variety of performing credit products, not just direct origination, but the whole world of asset-based and asset-based finance, mm-hmm. which we think we are the leader in that area because of our purchase of Atlas. Um, the second is the whole global wealth channel. You know, last year we did around $9 billion. This year we'll, we'll increase that dramatically up 30%. We've got seven or eight products right now a lot of evergreen products um, or perpetual products really focused on robust yield. Um, that's going to be a, a good third of our fundraising, I suspect, this year. Um, and between those two, um, and again, most of, you know, probably you know, two-thirds will be in the area of credit. The other third will be in the hybrid or equity area. So we feel very good about, about the fundraising on the, on the Apollo side as well as on the Athene side. You know, certainly in a higher rate environment, people buy more, 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 more annuities. Um, and so we had both engines working well last year uh, for our business. Yeah. yeah. And, and I, I guess even if we see rates come down a bit, the expectation is that's still going to stay robust. I, I think so. I mean, I, I, I do not suspect we're going to go back to where we were for the historic lows. Could I see rates lower? you know, 50 to 100 basis points, any kind of economic slowdown, I definitely can. But I, I don't think we're going to be back in a, a one-handle world anytime soon. Right. Right. So just a higher baseline. I think it's a higher baseline, yeah. 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 Uh, on, on the wealth side, I mean, this is a, a persistent topic uh, around Apollo. Can you walk us through your global wealth product suite and distribution capabilities today? And, and how do you feel distribution capabilities outside the U.S.? You know, how do you feel about that? And would you consider an inorganic uh, transaction in either Europe or Asia to extend the global reach? Well, I think let's talk about products and distribution. You know, products, the, the world really wants robust, repeatable yield products that are quite simple to understand. And when you go to them and say, we are in a direct origination product, Apollo Debt Solutions, 
XYZ competitor, KCAR goes out and buys a business at nine times. They put four and a half times of equity, and we are the top four and a half times of debt, and we make 10 to 11%. That's a very simple story. That, that product right now for us is almost $9 billion of assets. We started raising it two and a half, three years ago. So I think you, between the Apollo Debt Solutions and the other areas of large-scale lending uh, in the U.S. and Europe, those work all channels, all geographies. You know, we took our uh, Athene portfolio and pulled it out in terms of the alt portfolio. It's AAA. It's really a turnkey alternatives portfolio with no J-curve, no double fees. That has been one where we've raised quite a bit. So we've got seven or eight products that really fit those, either flagship or uh, robust yield themes. And to your point, um, while we've had great success in the U.S., uh, Europe and Asia and even Latin America continue to show great promise for us uh, in the wealth channels. Now, in the Asia, it's really the large wirehouses, folks like our host today. Um, in Europe, you have a, a much different backdrop because of the geography and the regulatory geography. But again, the large international names work well. Uh, and then the large trust banks or private banks. Uh, in the U.S., the RIA channel is growing uh, leaps and bounds. Uh, and then we have out there that massive opportunity, the, the 401, you know, the 401k channel, the DC, um, and that is going to be a huge opportunity as well. It's early days. The issues really are more so, you know, valuations and marking. But I think you're seeing right now this conversation as you started about liquidity and the idea of having a retiree who wants to retire in 20 or 30 years be focused on daily liquid products. That's, we'll, I think we're going to look back at that and say, what were we thinking? That seems like a bizarre mandate that we put on these. Um, and so I, I think what you're hearing me say is between robust yield, robust scale flagships, uh, we're open for business in the major geographies around the globe with a particular focus on the U.S., Asia, and Europe. But I'd also say to you, it, it, this is a bit of a race in terms of the places where you will be able to cement a business over the next decade. Sure. And what we have clearly learned, you know, we were of the view that if you have great investment performance, everything will happen. Well, that's, that's, that's table stakes. Right. But you need to have product innovation, you need to have boots on the ground, you need to have technology and education. And we've invested a tremendous amount. 200 people bought Griffin, uh, created Apollo Academy, all of those activities, which, you know, for us now, I think that's going to be an embedded brand that we build up, that people underestimate the value of our brand in terms of the, the scalability of that and the replicability. Yeah. It's... it's uh, there, there will only be shelf space for a handful of these names. And, uh, you know, it's a little bit of a, uh, a, a fight in the trenches, but we're confident we're going to be one of the folks that stand up tall okay. at the end. So not really feel good about the distribution capabilities? No. I, I could spend all of my time just focusing on global wealth distribution seven days a week. Um, and uh, I focus a lot on origination and syndication, So, but there's no doubt Global Wealth is a big focus for us, and Stephanie and team have done a great job. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. So turning to Athene, 
Okay. Uh, that merger has gone well, for sure. The growth in both flows and earnings are pretty self-evident at this point. What inning do you think we're in in the development for Athene as far as the product distribution network? I, I think we're still in early innings. What, what people forget about Athene is, you know, we, we have four channels of raising capital. Obviously, they're how we started what we, you know, the so-called inorganic merger, you know, bu buying runoff books of business blocks. blocks, which many of our peers do now. But the fact is, you know, when you look at our business now between retail, between reinsurance blocks, between PRT and FABN, we're able to raise capital in, in four distinct channels. And um, I think that many of our peers are focused on like maybe one or two of those channels at most. So we, we have four access uh, to the capital. I, I think if you look around the globe between Japan, between Australia, between Western Europe, you know, Western Europe has been a, little, a bit slower because while there are opportunities, the regulatory challenges have been, have been numerous. Uh, we're working through them. You know, Athora has grown nicely. But we think taking that, you know, the, the, between the four areas we raise capital, which gives us a lot of advantage for our peers, but also the geography, you know, we, we believe we, we're one of the three players that really is in the PRT market. And with the rise in rates, uh, a lot of pensions are finding themselves in a much higher funded basis. And we are there to, to participate in that activity, especially in the UK. So I think we're early innings. Um, you know, Jim and Grant have done an amazing job with this business. I would ask folks to go back and go in the Bloomberg and look three or four years ago what the market cap is when we bought it for and what it made last year. It was, a, it was in retrospect, um, it was a very wise move for us because it was not valued appropriately in the markets. And we are really, um, you know, because we knew it so well, there were no real integration issues. Um, and, you know, so I do think there's a, gr a bright future on the existing business. Yep. But then as you talk about creating new products, uh, guaranteed retirement income around the globe, other types of, um, you know, I call it like the Reese's, the, the peanut butter and the chocolate, bringing the theme and the Paul together in insurance wrapped. I, I believe we're at the early days of that. And so um, not a huge baseball fan, but I think we're, you know, definitely early innings. Yeah, definitely early innings. Yeah, I, I mean, we, I talk with the, uh, the folks that manage the annuity business at UBS, and they just say the, the quality of the distribution partners that you guys are signing up just steadily improves. Yeah, the Brett, the it's you know we we get together uh, a few times a year and talk about distribution strategy and and while they are distinct and separate right now, how we distribute annuities and how we distribute global wealth products, I, I suspect there will be product integration that people don't even have as part of their models, and as as you mentioned. I think the, the age, the demographic profile of, you know, savers going into, into retirement, how do they annuitize their savings once they get to be 55, 60, 65? Yeah. I, I think that's early, early days yet. Right. Um, and we're spending a lot of time in the, in the lab on trying to create the right type of products that would allow us to be a brand and investment leader in those for clients. Yep. Makes sense. I'd love to hear your thoughts on structured credit because this is a question that I get a lot from investors around Apollo. So, you know, it's, it's sort of a nagging concern around the complexity involved in structured 
credit and the track record of structured products in a downturn, right? Mm -hmm. um, it, it's, it's, uh, it causes a little bit of anxiety. So, you know, what would you say to address those concerns? I would say, like, let's, let, let's bring the facts to the forefront. Um, I, I grew up in Rochester, New York. Uh, a lot of disruption between Kodak, Xerox, and Bausch and & Lomb. And I worry more about our investment-grade portfolio and single-name risk than I do a well-structured, structured product portfolio. The fact is, the last 15, 18 years, 20 years, you can look at the numbers. Um, other than really poor RMBS and CMBS underwriting at the crisis, mm -hmm. structured credit has performed amazingly well versus single name. If you look at the CLO market, it's performed through and through. And so the facts, there's a lot of information being put out by the NAIC and other, would show the stress of structured credit through a cycle, um, and it performs admirably well. Um, and so I, and I also think you're seeing signs in Europe where they're coming to the conclusion right now that the lack of securitization market in Europe for the European banks has resulted in a lot more uh, incumbency risk uh, because of policy lending. Yep. So I would just say the facts don't bear out that concern. Um, you give me a, 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 a AAA or AA CMBS or CLO structure, um, those are pretty hard to break with defaults and recoveries. Do I, do I think that loan recoveries will be lower this time? Yes. Do I think that you have to be very careful about buying double Bs and CLO equity? Yes, I do. But don't, don't confuse, uh, you know, poor assets going into these structures with the structures themselves. Um, and so the, the, the math, and we've done, we've been very, very vocal, we've been very transparent, stressing these portfolios between, you know, commercial real estate, residential real estate, and corporate securities. And then I'd also say the whole ABS market, you know, we, we purchased that from CS with a view that, that getting our hands on these warehouses, that when you look through that warehouse risk, it basically attaches its single A type of risk, and we're getting paid 300 plus for that. Um, and there's 30 or 40 years of um, history of, of lack of defaults and higher recoveries if there is one. So we feel very comfortable. And I, I would also say is it's interesting. Folks that might have been the detractors a decade ago are now big advocates, either independently or with us where they've given us capital. And then you also see what's going on with the big banks right now buying a lot of AAA and AA CLO paper. So I think if you really, there's the emotional response, and then there's the in investigative um, uh, factual response, sure. and, and the reality is somewhere, it, it's closer to the facts. Yeah, and there's uh, plenty of anchoring that can go on. That's right. Those bad products. That's right. Um, I'm going to maybe touch on one on financials, and then we can see if there's a question or two in the room. Um, you know, I'd love to end on uh, thinking about impressive mid-20s percent FRE and SRE growth last year. Um, you know, which opportunities do you think are most exciting for Apollo in the medium term to continue to, to drive the earnings trajectory? Well, I think we, we've been public. SRE had an extraordinary year. Yeah. Um, a, a theme with the, with the backup in rates and the demand for annuities, which we think will continue. But I think we have to be practical about um, what we're saying. We've been pretty clear about the range of where SRE, SRE should grow, 10 to 15% going forward. 
uh, or low, you know, low, low double digits. Um, on the on the FRE business, that's a, a 15 to 20 percent growth business. Um, I think we're still at the I don't say early stages, but I think we're at the industry-wide secular um, period where there are many, many more allocators of capital to these to these business models. And so I think this year you'll see uh, very strong performance out of out of FRE on a year-to-year basis. Um, SRE had a really tough comparison, yeah. um, but I think we're we're well we're well positioned in both, and you know we have to be very thoughtful about um, our sidecar and what we do in ADIP on SRE in terms of making sure that grows. But we're excited about both our kids. Both are, you know we're they're both uh, well positioned, and I think we feel that the flywheel of synergy and how they benefit one another uh, will become more and more apparent, which takes the risk of execution from our business down dramatically. And the last thing I would say is to achieve the returns on SRE today at Athene, we're taking less risk. We're buying higher grade corporate uh, securities. We're less reliant on the alt book. And that is just a fact of a higher rate environment and where yields and spreads are today. Sure. So I feel confident on both and it's, it feels easier about the execution. Well, we haven't had any questions come through the pl- the platform, but is there any? We have mics that can run around the room. If there's anybody who'd like to ask a question, Jim, we can certainly take that. Too early. <laughs> Not enough coffee. All right, well, I'll ask one more in the meantime, and sure. if anybody decides to, to think of one. Um, in Asia, right, the opportunity in Japan and then broader APAC seems to be quite attractive, particularly in retirement services. Mm -hmm. So could you speak about the inroads that you've made thus far and and where you see the business going over the next few years? Well, you're right. I mean, Japan is a very interesting market for us. Um, uh, You know, if if one foresees a higher rate environment, which we do, um, and demand for yield and retirement savings, you know, we've done a variety of, of block reinsurance transactions. I think that will be a growth area. Uh, we can export our um, expertise in, in safe yield and robust investment fixed income replacement, which is massive demand in Japan for right now. Um, so, but we're, we're excited about Japan on the insurance side. We're also uh, excited about what's going on in Hong Kong. We're excited about what's going on in Australia. We own a big stake in Challenger, which we think will be valuable. Um, so those, and, and also in Australia, you have a period where the um, the, 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 the banks are certainly in the same situation in the U.S. in terms of what the actions of the Royal Commission, and they're trying to re- refine their business models. So particularly excited by, about the breadth of our business um, in Japan, but also Australia. Yeah, and when you think about Japan, it, it, right now you mentioned the blocks. Does it start with blocks and then expand out? I think or? so. We're, we're, we're never going to be a retail name in Japan. Like that's not, it makes no sense for us to even explore it. There's a lot of embedded names there that have done, right. have done a great job. So we, we will really bring our capital toolbox and our annuity toolbox to them. Um, we, now, we can be a, with, with the banks and partnering with the banks, be a, a solution for fixed income replacement and, and exporting our yield to the Japanese domestic market. But the idea of us creating a retail brand in Japan makes no sense. Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. 
Um, one last call to see if there's any questions in the room. Okay, we got one in the back. Thanks. You made a comment at the beginning. There's sort of a race to cement the businesses and channels for the next 10 years. When you think about wealth and retail specifically, is it going to be the top three to five alternative managers that, that own that, or is it going to be you know dozens and dozens? Thanks. I, I think it's clearly going to be a concentrated group of, of 80. It's going to be the 80-20 rule. Um, you know, there's 10,000 hedge funds. There's 10,000 PE firms. Uh, the, the largest, we know the numbers, the concentration. So I do think there's going to be, the, the big lesson for all of us have, has been it's not, investment performance is table stakes. And the ability and need for you to bring Apollo Academy, massive distribution of people feet on the street, uh, the technology and how people access it, the transparency, uh, th those are all critical attributes. And it also it becomes a little bit of a competitive moat. You know, how many, how many people, how much can you invest? How much can you go out there and create that brand identity? So I do think it will be a limited, I don't, I don't think you can assume if you're number 20 today, you might have a growing business, but I don't, I don't think you're going to pick up share. I think it's going to be uh, the top three to five have more than a 50% share in, the, in those businesses. Um, and, I, and I think it's also, it's going to be, as you see what UBS has done with CS and their desire to have strategic partnerships, the desire for the other large global wealth managers to do things in a very, I think open architecture is going to you know, rule the day. And I think the any idea of you know captive product and a captive channel, I don't think that's going to win. So I think, um, and I think we have to all be very smart about the products that we create. And you know, if we don't don't do, we have to think long term about the client experience. But I think that that will be the answer. Yes. So, okay. Well. I think that's actually a pretty good note to end on. Great. Jim, thanks Thank a lot you. for your time. Thank you. Good to see you. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you.